leading up to our very last week uh, in Germany, I was preaching up, I was preaching through the book of Revelation. And when I came to the final chapter, the final verses of the book of Revelation, I titled that sermon based on Revelation chapter 22, I titled it Holy Ever After. You know, kind of a spin on the old you know, traditional ending to a, to a story. They lived happily ever after. Well, when you read Revelation 22, you, you can't really just restrict the experience that the people of God will have that are just, that's described there to, to just happiness. Because the emphasis throughout is really on holiness and the splendor of the holy city. And so I titled that sermon, Holy Ever After. Um, and uh, because the people were described not, as, not just as happy, but as holy. And really, true happiness is just the overflow or the outflow. True happiness is the overflow of holiness. <clears throat> well, we don't have quite the same emphasis on holiness here in Zephaniah, but we do have a very pronounced emphasis on happiness and on blessing, on peace, and all such things that God will give to His people. So I decided to title this sermon, Happily Ever After. Um, at the conclusion of the prophecy of Zephaniah, now the prophet is seeing, I think, into the distant future. In fact, seeing all the way to the end of the age, and he foresees future blessing for all the people of God. And we see here uh, a note of happiness in the prophets that we don't always see. I know that as we go through the minor prophets, we hear a lot about judgment and many calls to repentance, many threatenings and warnings, all of which we need to hear, of course. But here we have uh, some joyous words as the Lord gives to His prophet visions of the future state as he teaches us that the Lord will bring his people into a state of eternal blessing at last. He'll finally bring all of his people into a state of eternal and full and unmitigated blessing. The three points I'd like to, to bring out of the text this evening are, first of all, fullness of redemption. And we're going to see such riches of redemptive expression here. <clears throat> and then we're going to see, it's uh, God's providence that uh, we, we read of the name that uh, this coming one would be given. He'd be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. We see a very clear declaration of what can be called the Emmanuel principle here in this passage from Zephaniah. And then finally, there's restoration, the final restoration described for us here. But first of all, let's consider fullness of redemption. Note, when we come to verse 14, who is being addressed? The prophetic oracle is addressed to the daughter of Zion and then to the daughter of Jerusalem. That's not the first time we've seen language like that in the prophets, but frequently as the prophets are speaking the Word of God to particularly to the people of Israel or to the people of Judah, it refers to them as the daughter of Israel, the daughter of Jerusalem, and that expression is used figuratively. It's, it's prophetic language, uh, and it's used to indicate a people group. It's an it's a expression that 
Um, it's used to describe the inhabitants of a city or the inhabitants of a land, and uh, they're called the daughter of this or that place. And it usually conveys a sense of tenderness, usually conveys a sense of affection. Now, it doesn't, obviously, when God talks to the daughter of Babylon, uh, but when He's talking to His people especially, He calls them the daughter of Zion or the daughter of Jerusalem. That's God expressing a warmth, the warmth of the heart of God for His people. And here in Zephaniah, He calls His covenant people to rejoice in Him, to rejoice in His work in their behalf, to rejoice in His salvation of them. And as He speaks to them of this fullness of redemption, He declares that the judgments against them are going to be taken away. And it's not a matter, of course, of pretending that Israel has no guilt. That would, that would be absurd. If you've <clears throat> spent any time reading the Old Testament and the history of the covenant people in the Old Testament, you know that when God describes them as a stiff-necked people, when He describes their, their stubbornness and their disobedience and their rebelliousness, He was not exaggerating. They did not have a history of being faithful. They did not have a history of keeping covenant with their God who loved them so. So there's no pretending that there's an absence of guilt. Her guilt was immense. And yet the Lord speaks to His people in a way that's very similar to the way the Lord Jesus spoke to that sinful woman in Luke chapter 7. Because there's no denying her sin either, was there? And in Luke 7, verse 47, when that woman came in and she was weeping and she was washing Jesus' feet with her tears and wiping them dry with her hair, and the Pharisee who was hosting Jesus said, if this man were a prophet, he would know that this woman is a sinner. And then Jesus has words with that Pharisee. And then he declares this. He says, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. It's not a denial of her sin. It's a removal of her sin. And that's what God is speaking of to His people here in the prophecy of Zephaniah. He's going to take away their sin. He's taken away, it says in verse 15, the judgments against them. And He's going to clear away their enemies. That's somewhat reminiscent, isn't it, of when the, when the Israelites first took possession of the land. God was working mightily in behalf of His people, driving out the inhabitants of the land so that Israel could take possession and dwell there. And here, God says, He's cleared away their enemies. They have no more cause to fear, it says at the end of verse 16, 15. You shall never fear again. And so, in verse 16, he encouraged them to be strong and courageous. Words that you're familiar with from especially the book of Joshua. Their enemies are going to be cleared away. And he declares that the Lord himself is going to deal with all of their oppressors. He himself will do it. 
in the fullness of his redemption. And God had dealt with oppressors of his people in the past to a certain extent and for a time. But I think this is looking to a final and complete and uh, eternal ridding of the oppressors of his people. And so there's an application in it for us that what's described here, the fullness of redemption that Zephaniah describes for us here, will come to pass. It's going to happen. God will do it. And He's doing it even now as the Lord Jesus Christ is building His church. And as He, in the words of our catechism, is subduing all of His and our enemies. And because He's doing this, we can live and we can walk and we can serve in confidence because we know that our Lord Jesus Christ will get victory over all of our oppressors, all of our foes. And, and of course, our greatest oppressor is sin itself. And He's giving us victory over that. He's giving us victory over Satan giving us victory over death. And we can go through this present life, this present age, knowing that we are already more than conquerors. I love that passage at the end of Romans chapter 8. Let's turn there together. Romans 8, the last few verses. Romans 8, beginning in verse 35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And what does he say in verse 37? These are bad, but we'll we'll overcome. That's not what he says. He says, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. Not just conquerors, but more than conquerors. That's fullness of redemption. And this is something of what Zephaniah was seeing and proclaiming many centuries before Christ. Fullness of redemption. Well, then we also have, over and over in this passage, the Emmanuel Principle. Maybe you've heard that expression before and think you already know what it is. But if you're curious, what is the Emmanuel principle? Well, it comes out of Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. We heard it quoted by the gospel writer, Matthew, in the passage we just read tonight. Emmanuel means God with us. And so the Emmanuel principle is that God will come and dwell with His people. He'll be among them. And the presence of God with His people is one of the most basic covenantal blessings. You know, at the end of the Aaronic blessing, which so often Pastor Mark or I will pronounce at the end of a service of worship, Lord, lift up the light of His countenance upon you and give you peace. Of course, when it was originally given to Aaron in, in Hebrew, 
And that word, of, you know, is shalom. And shalom isn't simply the absence of conflict. It's not simply safety. It's a, it's a whole, a full-orbed wellness. Shalom. And the essence of shalom is God with us. And it's been promised to His people from all the way back in the Old Testament. And that's why I say it's one of the most basic covenantal blessings. Deuteronomy 31, verse 8, says, It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Or Joshua chapter 1, verse 5. After you've had this, this monumental transfer of leadership, this change of command over the armies of Israel, Moses is dead. Joshua is now uh, leading the people. And God speaks to Joshua in chapter 1, verse 5, and says, No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. The Emmanuel principle, God with His people, God in their midst. Or Numbers 35, verse 34, God says, I, the Lord, dwell in the midst of the people of Israel. He's with them. That's what the presence of the tabernacle meant. That's what it signified. That's what it symbolized. And so when Israel would camp as they were wandering in the wilderness, they would camp all around the tabernacle, which was right in the middle. The place that God allowed His presence and His name to dwell. And so not only is the presence of God and God being with us the essence of covenantal blessing, the essence of curse is the absence of God, His withdrawal from His people. And God, at one point, threatened that. It was right after Moses had gone up on the mountain of Sinai to receive the book of the law. Meanwhile, the people of Israel made a golden calf and they were worshiping the golden calf. And Moses came down and, of course, you know all of what ensued. And then after Moses had basically triaged that catastrophic situation, then God spoke to Moses again And this is what God said after the incident with the golden calf. He said, Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. God's saying, Yeah, I'm going to give you the land just like I promised, but I'm not going to be with you. And in the next verse it says, When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. See, that's the, that's the essence of curse. The essence of blessing is God with us. The essence of curse is God withdrawing from us, God abandoning us, God turning His back on us, which is illustrated most terribly at the cross. Experienced more bitterly than anyone yet ever has by Jesus Himself when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Jesus, who for his whole life on earth had experienced unbroken and sweet communion with God the Father and the sense of God's blessing upon him, God withdrew that. And Jesus was in anguish. But because Christ bore the terror of that curse, we can have the blessing of the Emmanuel principle. Hallelujah. And this Emmanuel principle is on display beautifully and richly in, the, in Zephaniah here in these verses. Look at the second half of uh, verse 15. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. He is with you. Emmanuel. Verse 7, the Lord your God is in your midst, says again. And not only that, not only is he with them, but he's the one who's actually doing the work of gathering his people to himself. Verse 18, on that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. I'm sorry, verse 18. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you no longer suffer reproach. God isn't just saying, come to me. He's gathering them. Those who mourn for the festival means those who are yearning to worship God truly. And the celebration in the days of Zephaniah, the the celebration of many of the festivals was interrupted by oppressors, by invading nations, and they couldn't worship. And some of the faithful of the people grieved that they couldn't observe the feast. Verse 19, he says, I will gather the outcast. Verse 20, I will bring you in. I will gather you together. See, God is not only content to dwell among them, but He is purposefully Drawing people. And of course we know that this Emmanuel principle, we, we, we just had it given away to us. The spoiler was in Matthew chapter 1 because the, the, the Emmanuel principle is fulfilled in Christ. Through the unfolding of the covenant of grace, God promised His covenant, His presence to His people. He spoke these words to Abraham, to Moses and Joshua, and also to David various places in God's Word. I will be with you. And His presence was foretold by the prophets also. I want us to look at a couple of passages, especially from the prophecy of Ezekiel. So turn with me to Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel 37 and verse 27. He spoke of his servant David being king over them. And of course, that can't be the David because David had long since been dead. So he's talking about great David's greater son in the words of our hymn. And then he says in verse 27, My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God. They shall be my people. And then look at the very last words of Ezekiel's prophecy. Turn to Ezekiel 48. You know, there's some exciting prophetic stuff in chapters 38 and 39 of Ezekiel, but then when you get to chapter 40, there's all this very cryptic and and somewhat difficult to read account of 
Ezekiel's vision of, of, of the city, the holy city, the restored city. And the angel goes around measuring it, and, and there's a lot of description. And it, it can, it's, it's easy to kind of feel bogged down as you read it. But it's looking forward. And if, if, we, if we know how to interpret it, we can, we can rejoice even in some of these passages that seem a little bit dry at first glance, but he's been speaking about the city and he's speaking about then the uh, division of the land and I think this is all spiritual, it's figurative, but uh, in verse 48, uh, you've got, you got more dimensions. You can see all those numbers. You don't even have to really le- read it. Look at, just let your eyes uh, skim across the page and you see all these measurements and then allotments for the tribes. And then in v- words that uh, are very remarkably like the end of Revelation, it speaks of the gates of the city, three gates on each side with the names of the tribes on them. And look at the last verse. The circumference of the city shall be 18,000 cubits, and the name of the city from that time on shall be The Lord is There. The Emmanuel Principle God dwelling among His people. And then, of course, it was literally fulfilled in Christ's incarnation. God was with us, having taken flesh, dwelling among the children of men, and it will have final realization in the new Jerusalem. Revelation 21, verse 3, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. So already... To a certain extent, for those of us who are in Christ, the Emmanuel principle is a present reality. Jesus said so. Using words very similar to what we've read in other passages of Scripture, he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He said it to us. He said it to his church. He said it to Christians. It's a promise. Christ is always with us now and to the end of the age. The Emmanuel principle then, of course, it's being realized more and more and will come to fulfillment in the new heavens and the new earth. Which brings up the third point, which is final restoration. Notice the choice of words that the Spirit inspired the prophet to use in this passage. You've got lots of language of finality and so at the end of verse 15 it says you shall never fear never again fear evil never again verse 18 you shall no longer suffer reproach those two very specific References to a finality about the work that God is going to do. And that finality, I think, permeates, it carries over to everything else in this passage. The whole aspect of restoration that's being described. So you've got language of finality. You've got language of transformation. He's going to take a people 
who had been despised and suffered reproach. And he's going to turn their shame into praise and renown. Look at verse 19 again and hear this language of transformation. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors, and I will save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. So you see finality, you see transformation, and you see restoration, restored fortunes spoken of in verse 20. At that time I will bring you in, at the time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes. He's not only restoring their fortunes, but he speaks of restored relationship. That relationship that's been broken by sin and by our rebellion, he's going to restore. He's going to restore a relationship of protection, a relationship of joy, a relationship of peace, of shalom, and a relationship of affection. Look at verse 17 again. It speaks of the Lord in their midst who is a mighty one. He's able to defend His people. And He will rejoice. It will delight Him to do good. He's not grudging about this good that He's going to do for us, but He loves to do it. He delights to do good for us. It speaks of comforting reassurance. He'll quiet us. He'll quiet them. He'll calm their fears. He'll ease their anxiety. And then he says he's going to express his love in song. I will exult over you with loud singing. I'll say a word about that in just a moment. But uh, as we come to the close of Zephaniah's prophecy, all these good things all these joyous things that the prophet is speaking of have a sense of of permanence. His prophecy takes on a strong note of permanence because it's not like watching a show or a movie. There's there's no sequel. There's no new season or new episode coming up. This is the end. And how does the story end? It ends with glory and restoration for God's covenant people. I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. Now we have the New Testament Scriptures to inform these Old Testament Scriptures for us. And as we use them in that way, we see that Christ embodies the blessings that are heaped up in these verses. He embodies all that God says He's going to do for His people here, including and maybe especially this great benediction that we see in verse 17. Look at verse 17 again. The Lord, is, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Jesus is the promised Savior. Jesus is the true Joshua. In fact, 
We use the name Jesus because that's how, kind of how it comes to us through the Greek into English. But Jesus' name was the same as that man who was the successor to Moses. His name was Yeshua in Hebrew or Aramaic. He was the true Joshua. And the reason they called him Jesus is because he will deliver his people from their sins. Just as Joshua was the one who delivered the people into the promised land. Jesus is the one who is the deliverer. He's the victorious king. He's the mighty one who saves. And when it says he will rejoice over you with gladness, didn't Jesus himself say that there is joy in heaven when one sinner repents? It's not just joy of the angels only. It's joy of the Lord God himself. Joy of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's your Father's good pleasure, Jesus told us, to give you the kingdom. He says, I'll quiet you with my love. He will quiet you with his love. John 14, 27 says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. And then this thing about singing, I will exalt over you with loud singing. Zephaniah 3.17 is the only place in the whole Bible that speaks of God expressing his love for his people and that love overflowing into song. Can you imagine it? I've heard lots of really great music in my life. I've heard some of the greatest orchestras in the world in concert. Chicago, New York, Rotterdam, Berlin. I've heard some great singing, some great vocal music. I was at the Houston Grand Opera for a performance one time, and I admit at one point I sort of got distracted. There's a little bit of um, nondescript action taking on taking place on stage, I didn't notice this tenor who had walked out on stage. And suddenly the music changed and this tenor began to sing. And the music was so beautiful and his voice so wonderful and powerful. I almost involuntarily, without thinking, but stood up from my seat. I was so moved by the beauty of the music. Or when I was in graduate school, I used to, on occasion, give tours of our school, of our building. And one day, uh, a bus pulled up and uh, there was this choir from the Soviet Union. It was considered to be one of the top professional choirs in all of Russia. And they were on tour in New York and they came and wanted a tour of the school. And I was the one who got to give them the tour. So I took them up to the fifth floor and showed them the classrooms, came down to the fourth floor. This was the normal procedure. Showed them practice rooms and other things on the fourth floor. Then we got down to the third floor, which is where the orchestra hall is, the rehearsal room, the main rehearsal hall. And I was explaining to them that you know, we rehearse here and named some of the famous conductors who had conducted in that room. And I remember the room was a little bit dark because I couldn't get the main lights on. I only had the uh, ambient uh, side lighting on, but talking to them, and when I'd finished saying everything I thought I had to say about the rehearsal hall, I just paused and I was ready to move on. And then the the choir's tour guide comes to me and he said, would you like them to sing for you? I said, sure. 
So they sat me down in a chair, and this professional Russian choir stood around me and sang. But Zephaniah says, someday God is going to sing over you. And all the most beautiful music in the world won't be able to compare to the day when we hear the Almighty sing. And when he sings, he's going to be singing a love song for you. Can you imagine it? I can't. But I'm looking forward to it. The conclusion of Zephaniah's prophecy foretells something beyond this present age. It looks to the end of the age. It looks to the world to come. It speaks of the time when everything will be made right. When all that is evil will be made untrue. A time when all of the elect of God, Jews and Gentiles, from all the nations of the earth will enter into the glory of their master. Men write stories with happy endings. But in this present age, life goes on and new sorrows come. When this passing world is done, there will be no more sorrow, no more death, no mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore because the former things will have passed away. And that will all happen when Jesus comes again. Then we really will live happily ever after when our Savior comes. And that's what we remember when we come to the table. We remember his death. We celebrate his presence with us. And we look to when he's going to come again, bring us to himself. Amen.